Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that the preaching of your word would bring truth and delight to our ears and hearts. Father, that you would prepare our hearts to worship you, to come to you in humble submission. Lord, I pray that this word would encourage us to worship you and to see you as faithful and good, to point us away from ourselves and to you as a faithful Savior. I pray that you'd allow each and every person here to set aside um, the baggage and the burden they've come here with and also the distractions um, that we may sit under your word and hear from you this morning. I ask that you would bless this sermon and our hearing of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. Good morning, River City. Um, This morning, we're going to continue through Luke's gospel. Last week, Jake preached on the transfiguration um, where Jesus went up the mountain with three of his disciples and revealed his divine glory to them. And so that would have been an incredible experience for those disciples. But like every mountaintop experience, eventually it has to come to an end. And this one ends rather abruptly. We go from this marvelous picture of the intense and shining glory of Jesus to the dark and somber realities of sin, suffering, and our frailty. What's been a week in between these stories for us is really only one day or a day and a half for Jesus and his disciples. So let's look at Mark, or Luke 9, 37 through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So this story is um, covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but Luke's is actually the most generic. And so we're going to draw, throughout this sermon, we're going to draw from details that Matthew 17 and Mark 9 provide um, for some more clarity. But before we get there, I ask you, have you ever heard anyone tell you to just have faith? Or that you just need to believe? 
Well, while that's a sentimental idea, faith without an object is actually useless. You cannot just have faith. To believe is to believe in something. Faith must have an object. But does believing in just something get the job done? You just need to believe in something? No, the object of that faith needs to be faithful and to be able to provide all that it promises to provide. If you need an example of how faith in an unfaithful object hurts people, just look for a Minnesota sports fan when the postseason rolls around. This is our year. Every year. No matter how strongly you believe, the Vikings still have zero rings. Fun fact, I said that this morning, and there was a Vikings player here, and I did not know that. (laughs) So uh, he was visiting his cousin who played in the NDSU game yesterday. (laughs) But (laughs) my point, (laughs) my point is that faith is only as good as the object that that faith is in. Faith is only as good as the object that that faith is in. So I ask you this morning, what is your faith in? Is your faith misplaced? Is your faith incomplete and fragmented? Jesus is the faithful object of our faith. When your faith is misplaced... So we see that Jesus, Peter, James, and John return down the mountain to the other disciples, and there's also a crowd. Within that crowd is a man with a demon-possessed son. He had likely heard of Jesus and the works that he had done and sought him out for help. So when he showed up and couldn't find Jesus, he sought out his disciples as the next best thing, but they could not cast the demon out. As soon as Jesus comes down the mountain to the crowd, this man cries out to him and reports the situation. Jesus' response here shocked me. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. As I was reading this and looking at this passage this week, my biggest question was, where does this harsh rebuke suddenly come from? Is this directed at the man for bringing his son to Jesus? Or is this directed at the disciples who couldn't cast the demon out? Like, I know that they couldn't cast this demon out, but this seems a little harsh and that it comes from left field. And I can't think of any other time in the Gospels where Jesus responds to someone who desperately seeks his help in this way. So who is Jesus rebuking and why? This is where Mark's account gives us a detail that um, sheds a little clarity here. Mark nine fourteen, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. 
So this crowd is made up of his disciples, which is more than just the 12, because we see, we'll see in chapter 10 of Luke that he sends out 72 disciples. So there's disciples, there's these scribes that were arguing with them. And based on Jesus' popularity, there was likely just average citizens in the area who were curious and uh, wanting to hear what Jesus said and behold some of the works that they've heard about. And there was also this man with the demon-possessed son. And when Jesus asks the crowd what they're arguing about, this man answers from the crowd with the state of his son and how the disciples could not help him. So it is at this point that Jesus delivers his rebuke. We'll look at the face of the, of the father with the demon-possessed son in a bit. But this rebuke is for the misplaced faith of both the scribes and the disciples. Why do I think that? Well, the language Jesus uses here is used elsewhere in Scripture. There are similar rebukes toward Israel in Psalm 78 and Deuteronomy 32. And fun fact, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament a lot, Psalms being his most quoted book and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy being the second. So Psalm 78 is a song that recounts Israel's history up until the kingship of David. It contrasts the rebellion and disobedience of the people with the faithfulness of God. Let's see if you can locate any words sounding similar to Jesus' rebuke here. Starting in verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verse 21, his anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet, uh, the psalm goes on to show how God continued to be faithful to Israel. So can you see the faithfulness from God here contrasted with the rebellion of Israel? Verse 8 says of them that they are a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that was not steadfast or faithful to God. Verse 22 points to their faithlessness. They did not believe in God, nor trust in his saving power. One could say they were a faithless and corrupt or twisted generation. Deuteronomy 32, that Josh read for us at the beginning of the service, is also a song describing Israel's unfaithfulness in light of God's faithfulness. See if you can uh, find where Jesus' rebuke comes from here. Verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. 
This passage is an even more word-for-word similarity to Jesus' rebuke to the crowd. And this is significant because this crowd would have known their scriptures. They would have known exactly where these rebukes come from and what they were for. Jesus was accusing them of the same sins that Psalm 78 and Deuteronomy 32 accuses the people of Israel of. So what is that sin? What was Jesus accusing the crowd of? Despite God's faithfulness and marvelous works, the people sinned all the more against him. They did not believe in him or his promises. They trusted in false gods and idols. Their faith was misplaced. Is your faith misplaced? But how were the scribes and the disciples both worthy of the same rebuke? Well, first, the scribes are frequently displayed in the Gospels as those who are strongly opposed to Jesus, right alongside the Pharisees. And here we see them arguing with his disciples before he arrived. So the main thrust of this rebuke is directed at them. By this time, they have heard much about Jesus and about the works that, he's, that he has done. They've maybe even beheld some of the healings that he's done. And yet, they demonstrate themselves to be against him. Like the generations of Israel before, they witnessed the marvelous works of God and yet rejected him. Look at verse, um, Luke nine forty three. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus goes on to talk to his disciples. So they are astonished at the majesty of God and they marvel. Yet they are rebuked for being a faithless and twisted generation like those of old because they beheld the majesty of God in Jesus and yet rejected him. Their faith was misplaced. Rather than submitting to the Messiah, they were holding out for their version of a Messiah. Rather than submitting to God in repentance, they were holding out for their idea of what God should do. They sounded like this. A good Messiah wouldn't eat with sinners. Therefore, I don't believe he's the Messiah. A good Messiah wouldn't heal on the Sabbath. Therefore, I don't believe he's the Messiah. A good Messiah would free us from Roman oppression. Therefore, I don't believe he's the Messiah. And this rebuke could be for you this morning if you sound similar to these statements. A good God wouldn't really call that a sin. Therefore, I can't trust his word. A good God wouldn't allow this tragedy to happen. Therefore, he must not be sovereign. Many atheist testimonies sound like a good God wouldn't blank, therefore I don't believe in him. The problem with this is that your faith is misplaced. Rather than humbly submitting to God's word and who he's revealed himself to be, you are placing your faith in who you think God should be. The scribes and the crowd did that and they missed God's Messiah because of it. If that is you this morning, if you've rejected God and your faith is not in Jesus, if your faith is set on something else, 
Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite your sin and your rejection of him, his grace is still offered to you. Though you have been faithless, he is still faithful and will receive you if you humble yourself, turn to him, and rest in his promise to save you and forgive you. What is your faith in? May you find Jesus to be the faithful object of your faith. Now, how did the disciples fit into this rebuke? The disciples were followers of Jesus, but with the healing of the demon-possessed boy, they trusted in their own strength. Their faith was misplaced. This is why they failed, and this is why they are included in Jesus' rebuke. In both Matthew and Mark's account of this story, the disciples ask Jesus why they couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus responds by telling them that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What does prayer imply? It implies dependency upon God. The fact that they could not accomplish this because they were not praying demonstrates that they were attempting to do this in their own strength, in their own efforts. Their faith was misplaced because it was in themselves and their own abilities. This is the same mistake that the people of Israel made when they entered the promised land. They had the miraculous defeat of Jericho, but then they moved on from there without consulting God and were humiliatingly defeated by the small city of Ai. For us, this can happen when we forget that both our salvation and our growth in Christ are dependent upon the grace of God. We tend to think that we're saved through faith in Jesus and not our own works, and that is true. But then we fall into the idea that our growth in holiness is all on us. And then we go about it in our own strength and our own efforts rather than relying on God. Paul sees the same self-reliance in the Galatian church and mourns, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This group of Christians rightly believed that their Christian life began by the Spirit, by the power and grace of God. However, they failed to realize that every step of the Christian life is by the Spirit and not the flesh. They had misplaced their faith and were becoming self-reliant. Against our pride, we too need to fight this misplaced faith. We need to confess our self-reliance to God and admit that we need him in each step of our lives to uphold us, strengthen us, and enliven us to do his works and obey his will. This involves humble submission to God's word, a desire for obedience to it, and prayerful dependence upon him to supply all that we need. Yet, 
misplaced faith is not our only problem. And it is also not the only problem we see here in this story. Our faith is in Jesus, but sometimes it's fragmented. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we believe in Jesus, we hold to the gospel, but there's still question marks. There's still doubt in some areas. We don't have perfect theology. Our faith is fragmented. We have both confidence in God and yet unanswered questions. We have assurance in Christ and yet real doubts in some areas. This is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. When your faith is fragmented, Jesus is the faithful object of your faith. Let's look at the disciples again in the next scene of this story. As the crowd is marveling at the work of Jesus, he pulls his disciples aside to tell them about his eventual death again. The disciples, though, hearing the words of Jesus, do not understand them. Luke's account is, again, slightly less specific here. Matthew and Mark's accounts tell us how um, Jesus uh, told them that not only would he be delivered into the hands of men, but that he would also be killed and rise from the dead in three days. So for the second time now, Jesus tells them clearly that he is going to be killed, but they do not understand This exchange with the disciples shows us two things. Jesus is faithful. And it shows us that Jesus is the object of the disciples' faith, even though they don't understand everything. So first, this shows us that Jesus is faithful because he presses on towards the cross. He is committed to obeying the Father's will and remaining faithful to the eternal plan of mankind's redemption. Jesus is a faithful Savior, and he does not waver from his mission or from his people. And as we know, Jesus would go to the cross, and he would die and rise again from the grave, just as he said. He has proved himself faithful then, And we can trust that he will be faithful today and tomorrow because he does not change. Jesus is faithful. Make him the object of your faith. So second, we see that the disciples make Jesus the object of their faith even though they don't understand everything. They believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But the thought that he would die It doesn't compute. They don't understand. Their faith is fragmented. They have confidence in Jesus and are following him no matter the cost, but they also don't understand much of what he says or what he does. But despite this lack of understanding, they cling to what they know. They didn't need every question answered to continue to follow him. Jesus is the Messiah. And they press on after him despite their confusion. Jesus is the faithful object of their faith. So I ask you, is your faith fragmented in any way? Do you trust in Jesus and yet encounter things that you don't understand or questions you can't answer? 
Like Jesus, we are, or like the disciples, we are finite and limited. We will not be able to eliminate all questions or doubts. However, let us not believe that our level of understanding has to stay the way it is. Look at the end of verse 45 from our passage today. It says, And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus had graciously told them about what was to come. He gave them forewarning. He wanted them to know. They could have asked him what, about their lack of understanding, but they didn't. If you have questions or uncertainties or doubts that are mingled with your faith in Jesus, you can seek out clarity. You could meet with one of the pastors here if you're wrestling through um, something, looking for answers. Or you could meet with your community group leader if you're in, involved in one of those. You could devote more time to reading God's word and humbly seeking its answers. You could pray and ask God for wisdom and understanding. James chapter 1 says this is a prayer that he will answer. You could also pursue theological understanding through books written by Christians who have gone before you, who have wrestled over some of these questions. Your level of understanding doesn't necessarily have to stay where it's at if you would ask and pursue clarity. The disciples give us a good example in that Jesus remained the object of their faith despite their lack of understanding, but they also show us how we can resolve our lack of understanding by asking, by pursuing answers. So while you cling to Jesus as the faithful object of your faith, you can seek out answers to your questions and resolutions to your doubts. It won't result in perfect theology or perfect understanding. But I encourage you, it will result in growth. Cling to him and pursue understanding. But there will be times where there will be things you will just never be able to understand. When you experience things such as tragedy, abuse, or the death that appears to happen way too early. All these things, though we might have our systematic theology answer for them, when they happen to us, we don't have answers. And they're extremely hard to understand. The lack of understanding and doubt that we experience here because of these hardships can fragment our faith. Our faith remains in Jesus and that God is good, but we have so many unanswered questions. In the passage today, there's a father with a son who's been tormented by a demon from a very young age. Surely he doesn't understand why this is happening, but he knew Jesus could do something about it. For this man, Jesus was the faithful object of his faith, even when he didn't understand everything. Another detail that comes from Mark's account is this man's response to Jesus as he desperately cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Those words capture, I think, where a lot of us can be in times of tragedy and suffering or doubt and confusion. 
J.C. Ryle, an 1800s pastor, so elegantly comments on this man's response. We see in those words a vivid picture of the heart of many a true Christian. Few indeed are to be found among believers in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in a child of God so long as he is in the body. His knowledge and love and humility are all more or less defective and mingled with corruption. As it is with his other graces, so it is with his faith. Do you feel that? I think there's two more great truths here. The first is that your salvation does not depend on the strength of your faith. If it did, who could be saved? We do not have perfect faith that is without doubt or lack of understanding. It depends on the strength of the object of your faith, no matter how feeble your faith in that object may be. Jesus is the faithful object of your faith. Because he is faithful to his promises, you can trust what he says is true for you. When he says, believe in me and you will be saved, you can trust him more than the strength of your own faith. The second thing, the second great truth, is that you can cling to Jesus. Cling to what you know is true of him in the midst of fear and doubt. When storms experiences or trials fragment your faith, you can cling to what you know is true about God because he is faithful. Who he says he is, he really is. This week, I reached out to Grant and Brittany Cooper who are going through a greater trial than I've ever experienced or hope to experience. And for those of you who don't know them, they attend here. They've recently had a daughter named Esther who is currently at the Minneapolis Children's Hospital receiving extensive care. Um, Brittany does have a story on Facebook um, if you are interested in following that for updates. But as they've had their home, their routine, their control, their community, and their independence stripped from them, I wanted to hear about how they've continued to trust in Christ despite their understanding or their lack of understanding. Grant shared an analogy about a pilot flying a plane. The pilot's capabilities aren't determined by how his passengers feel about flying. If they are scared or excited, it won't change the way he flies the plane. My thoughts and feelings, whether they are happy or sad or somewhere in between, Do not determine God's faithfulness towards me as a child of God. He is always for me and working all things out for my good and his glory. Thank the Lord it is this way. His plan is, his perfect plan has been laid out from eternity past and I choose to trust that whether I understand it or not. Because Jesus is faithful, Grant finds hope in clinging to him despite the feebleness of his faith and understanding. Jesus is the faithful pilot of his plane. 
Jesus is the faithful object of his faith. Brittany shared, I'll be honest, it's incredibly scary. Choosing to trust Christ in the midst of suffering and unknowns requires dying to self and dependency upon him. It requires submission of control and admission that I don't know everything. It means I have to be completely raw and real about where I'm at with myself and with God. All of this puts me in a very vulnerable place to get hurt and to experience immense pain. But it is also in this place that I get to experience the greatest intimacy with God and that I get to see his power on display. The similarity between Grant, Brittany, and the father of the boy in this story is that their faith in Christ is mixed with unbelief, doubts, fears, and unanswered questions. But their assurance and hope are found in Christ, the faithful object of their faith. Because he is faithful, they cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And maybe you've experienced something that has fragmented your faith. It's caused questions that you can't answer. It's made you doubt things that you took for granted before. It's turned your world upside down and leaves you searching for answers. May I encourage you to respond like this boy's father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. May Jesus be the faithful object of your faith, even in the midst of uncertainty. Believe that God is good even when you can't see how. Believe that Jesus is faithful even when it seems like he isn't. Believe that because of Christ, he loves you even in the midst of suffering and sin. Believe what God has said and seek his help to remove your doubts, fears, and failings. But while you wait, cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is the faithful object of your faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you because you are perfect and faithful while we are finite and limited. Lord, in us, there's a mixture of faith and unbelief, certainty and doubt. Lord, help us humbly submit to your word and who you say you are while we wait for clarity. And may we trust you even if we never get the answers. You've proven yourself to be faithful and you do not change. You'll be faithful tomorrow. Help us trust you when it's hard. Help us seek out understanding and grow our knowledge of you. Encourage us to have those conversations with others who can help us learn and process what we're going through. Jesus, you are faithful. 
draw our hearts to worship you now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.